Welcome to the Cefalo Show, where we interview key players from inside and outside the crypto economy to discuss everything there is to know about cryptocurrencies and its impact on society. Whether you are a skeptic, a long-term investor, or simply crypto curious, Cefalo is here to be your guide. Follow us on your favorite social media platform or cefalo.com. Subscribe today and never miss a show again. And visit blog.cefalo.com to find more content like this. Follow us on your favorite social media platform or cefalo.com. Subscribe today and never miss a show again. And visit blog.cefalo.com to find more content like this. Welcome to today's show with your host, Frank Schull. Welcome, everybody, to episode 11. Uh, this is the last episode of this season. And uh, we have Nicholas on the technicals today. Welcome, Nicholas. Hey, yeah, that's going so, Add so well. The the there today. we go. There we go. I got it. <laughs> Met us today on vacation. Met us on vacation today, but Nicholas was uh, so nice to jump in. Uh, anything you want to remind every the watchers of, the viewers of for today's episode? Uh, yeah, so this is the first time I'm doing this, but if you have any, any comments or questions, uh, post it and I think I know where to find it and I'll see if we can forward the questions up to, to Frank and our guests. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, we start with a sponsor message. Uh, this show is sponsored by Cefalo, hence the name of the show. Uh, the latest product that we launched is Cefalo Premium, which is for the user with a little bit of a bigger budget to invest in crypto. You get the lowest rates, personalized support, and the same safe and simple user experience that tens of thousands of customers have trusted Cefalo with since 2013. Go to cefalo.com slash premium and sign up today. Cefalo.com, safe and simple. All right. So that's it for the promo message. Then we go on to the main event, which is none other than Meltem the Mirrors. So Meltem, well, welcome. I'll, I'll first do the intro, but you're already here. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll do the part of the introduction and that. And then we can do the wave. So I'll just give a little bit of background for the viewers. Uh, so since she uh, Meltem joined uh, the cryptocurrency industry in 2015, she's been actively managing and leading investment firms, supporting and advising founders, building early stage companies, and leveraging her experience and network to accelerate the growth of the crypto asset class and the firms developing it. She uh, is the hold chief. Hold on. Hold no? on. This is such a boring intro. You and I have known each other for five years now. I know. You're one of the first founders. I worked with in the industry. Um, do like do a Frank intro. How would you describe me? <laughs> the Frank intro will be in Dutch because you you have a South African. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I would I well we 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 met each other through Digital Currency Group when you were still working there uh, as part of uh, Barry Silbert's team, and I I think you were part of the uh, the investment team at that time uh, where you had I think together with uh, uh, Larry that you work with, um, uh, sorry Travis and not Larry yet at the time. So I would describe you as a fun person that I mostly drank beer with around a pool table at the Digital Currency <laughs> events. <laughs> And then some crypto sh uh, shit talking, uh, which is aligned with what you coined to Congress, I understood, where you coined the term shitcoin to the hill. Isn't that right? I don't want to take credit for that. That was Congressman Davidson. Um, he's okay. the one who said shitcoin. I just explained why Bitcoin was different. So, 
<laughs> so yes, so the the boring intro was what I liked. I for for those listening, I will finish it to to let people know that you're the C, uh, chief strategy officer at CoinShares. Uh, you're advisor to Future Commerce at MIT Media Lab, and you're also part of the Blockchain Council for the World Economic uh, Forum. And uh, as I, you know, already mentioned, you testified to Congress, which uh, I guess was a little bit of a big deal. How, how was that? Oh, I think it was um, fine. I think what was exciting to me is the opportunity to to talk about Bitcoin more in Congress. Um, I will say, you know, there have been um, a number of different conversations in in Washington D.C. That was just a more high profile one because it was about uh, Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency. And so I think um, what was nice for me is that we got an opportunity to change the conversation and really make it about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is so important for American innovation, American startups, as well as um, financial liberties for people around the world. So hopefully, you know, we continue to make positive oh. progress um, in educating people about Bitcoin and the differences between Bitcoin and many other things um, that could be useful, but are most certainly not Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess we can talk a lot more about the differences of the cryptocurrency, but maybe let's go back to when we met. What, what I guess the year, so that was 2015, you got involved. So I guess I was already in it for two years or so. And 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 you then joined. What, what did you what did you do before? Uh, what did you do before the digital currency group? I was in graduate school at MIT. So All right, <laughs> I was in okay. grad school. Yeah, I had, I was before that I was in the oil industry um, until 2013. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was in graduate school. Um, I realized very quickly. So I was it's a funny story. I was actually sponsored um, in for graduate school. So like my employer paid me effectively to go to graduate school because um, it's expensive and okay. you take two years off and like you know it's it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I was supposed to go back and I was like there is no way that I'm going to go back to working in corporate MA. There's no way that I'm gonna go mm -hmm. work for operation. You know, it's just not I don't see that really work <laughs> working. Um yeah. And then I was like, do I want to work in venture? Like, do I want to go to PE firm or hedge fund? I talked to a whole bunch of different uh, fintech startups. And then mm. through um, some mutual friends, Ryan Selkis and Dan oh, Elitzer, because okay. Ryan had joined Barry six months earlier to start mm. working on what would become Digital Currency Group. Because when mm. I joined Digital Currency Group, didn't really exist yet. Right. It was and just so, the, uh, it was just Barry who made private investments as well, I think. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then there was the the second market entity. So it's right. like this really interesting time where it was like, hey, we're going to try to do this this new thing. Um, haven't really raised money for it yet. Like, don't really know what the role is. Do you want to come work with us? So I was like, Sh sure. <laughs> Why not? I'll go into crazy debt um, and like figure it out. And it's so funny because at the time, a bunch of my classmates were like, why would you do that? Bitcoin's not a thing. Like the same thing you would hear about Bitcoin three years later is like, oh, you know, it's all money on the dark web for criminals. And at that point, I'd been, right. you know, interested in and sort of like personally excited about Bitcoin for two years. Um, yeah, so it kind of started from there. I was like, let's just go on this weird ride. And you remember when we announced uh, Digital Currency Group and the close of our first tranche of funding in the fall of 2015, you came mm. out to... 
that first event we threw at the Four Seasons in Palo Alto. Right. And I still remember the first one. <laughs> yeah, we brought all the founders together at that time. I think there were 40 of you. Um, you know, yeah. so it it was fun. It was just a very different time. It's very fun. Um yeah, it was a, a different point in so the I, industry. Yeah. What what I liked about that about that time, of course, in the industry that it's Basically, you could keep track of everything. You could uh, keep track of every person and sort of every project going on. And I think for me that that changed in 2017, really, with the ICO craze, where suddenly everybody uh, was doing some kind of crypto project. And and I guess it never you know got back to anything else. I mean, it just grew a magnitude larger. And suddenly, you know, that sort of that initial group sort of dispersed into their own sort of sub groups and and different projects um but i you know i do remember that that event and it was in it was in palo alto i think in the four season as you mentioned and uh it was mostly investors and then the, the subsequent years were in san francisco too and then you know there was the 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 founder event which you know the current format i don't know if you ever were in that current format but i i definitely like the current setup as well that barry's doing yeah uh, i it's a reflection of the evolution right to your point um, when I was first at DCG, like I knew everyone in the industry, right? Um, I knew all the Bitcoin core developers, like everyone was on the Bitcoin core Slack. <laughs> we would go to all the all same right. events. We're all hanging out with each other. Um, then it was the block size wars. And so I, um, you know, my life for the last five years effectively has been 100% crypto like i would go to a different meetup every night i would go to a different conference every weekend all of my friends were in the industry right like mm. bitcoin was basically my my life for three four years there um and then i got involved in the scaling bitcoin conference series and then that you know whole year was kind of a, a blur um and then i think really to your point when ico started just the industry changed a lot um and yeah, I, at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to, at the start of 2018, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a step back and just like reevaluate. I did not come here for this and I'm not really sure what I want my involvement to be in like this, this new sort of ecosystem that's, that's emerging. Um, and DCG yeah. was also changing at that point. We'd invested in 130 companies. It was really difficult to have the types of relationships I wanted to have with with founders and the types of involvement I wanted to have with with projects. Um, so yeah, it was just like great ride for three years, wild ride. Took a step back and then made the transition over to CoinShares um, about two years ago now. And yeah. CoinShares very different in some ways, but also similar um, to, to what we built at DCG. So that's also been a wild adventure. And CoinShares, as you know, has a lot of links to the Nordics um, because XBT provider, oh. our exchange created yeah. product is listed on the NASDAQ in Stockholm. So. Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember, uh, of course, XPT provider, and I also remember that acquisition of CoinShares. So it was kind of, I, I, I had the the initial uh, connection to XPT provider being the first sort of listed ETN globally, uh, which was a big deal, and it was all happening in a backyard here in Sweden. Um, and then it was CoinShares acquiring it, and then I, I, I think I met the founder in. Guernsey or uh, at some point who was running it then. I'm not sure if he's lo uh, any longer with the company. Yeah, um, 
Um, so my colleague Danny um, is the one, and I actually met the gentleman who initially had created XMT Provider, um, right. Jonas Waters. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. great. Um, I met him in person finally in uh, Switzerland earlier this year. But I look, think he's creating the, a the bank, idea. isn't he? Yeah, he's still very actively involved in the digital assets space. Um, I think the other thing people don't know about CoinShares is before we acquired the XBT provider product, right? Um, actually, Danny had started the first Bitcoin hedge fund mm. that was regulated. He started it in 2014. Mm. It was called Gabby or Global Advisors mm. Bitcoin Investment Fund. Um, and before that, Global Advisors had been a commodity fund, right? And um, in fact, he in 2013 wrote the first sort of opinion piece on Bitcoin for Goldman Sachs, because he comes from JP Morgan and he has a long history in sort of more institutional finance. And so he wrote a great piece in 2013 um, on behalf of Goldman for their clients and, and their uh, client base about the similarities between the development of the commodities industry and the opportunities he saw in Bitcoin and all of the parallels. Because if you'll recall, you know, in the 80s, commodities were not really considered an asset class, right? Nobody mm -hmm. invested in commodities. There was an active market and it wasn't really until the late 1990s that commodities became an asset class as a result of you know the introduction of the um uh, msci the morgan, morgan stanley commodities index and the gsci pardon not the msci that's the emerging markets index the gsci the goldman sachs uh commodities index which sort of formalized okay. um people ability to access commodities and then the creation of a derivatives market right so it used to be you know if you're trading commodities you're actually buying and selling pork bellies and barrels of oil and, you know, millions mm. of cubic feet of natural gas. And so until this sort of paper market, this electronic emerge, uh, market emerged, a lot of which actually was driven by Enron in the early 2000s, who created the first uh, digital online marketplace for commodities. And actually, really interestingly, one thing people don't know about Enron is they tried to create Netflix back in 2000. They had partnered with, um, with uh, what's the video chain called? Like some, there was some a blockbuster. Exactly. So they partnered with Blockbuster and they were going to stream videos online. They had also built a really cool financial product where they were trying to create a, a so just to get that right. Yeah. So Blockbuster Blockbuster uh, said no to Netflix because I think at some point they could acquire Netflix and they went then after that interaction with Netflix and created something themselves with Enron. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? The partnership, I think, came way before Netflix. So okay. Enron really, from 99 to 2001, was sort of their, their prime. Um, mm. So they invested, I think, close to $200 million in trying to launch this, this joint venture with Blockbuster to stream videos. The other cool thing that people don't, don't know um, was they created a lot of really interesting financial products. So one of the products they tried to create was a futures product for data centers so that mm. you could create a derivative market around compute and connectivity. And mm. I think that's still something we're working on today. Um, if you look at sort of the market that's emerging around hash rate, I think that's an area we've been paying a lot of attention to. So it's just interesting to think about, um, you know, I, I came from the commodities business and I was focused very much on onshore 
um, shale gas. And then I also traded, um, you know, carbon credits and uh, really esoteric liquid things like cargoes of, of ethanol, methanol. Uh, back in the, the early 2000s. So what I think is really interesting here is there's just so many parallels about how these different markets have developed. So it's been really fun working mm. with Bernie and Ross and Jean-Marie, my partners at CoinShares, because we all come from a, a similar sort of, of place. We've experienced it in, in different ways. Um, but I think the people who really understand Bitcoin and its value proposition are commodities traders. FX traders and technology investors, and it, it's for a reason. It's because we've seen this story before. So what what went wrong again with Enron, and do we see anything similar happening today in the crypto space? I mean, very simply put, what went wrong with Enron is they committed like atrocious financial fraud. Um, the issue is, is while they were running around doing all these really cool things, um, they were spending a lot of money, and they were no longer profitable. They made a lot of money, um, you know over the, the late 90s. And at one point, 25% um, of all commodities trading in the US went through Enron, which looked pretty impressive for an upstart. Mm. Um, the issue is, is that, you know, they no longer were, were profitable. They tried to hide that by doing a lot of funky things with carrying forward revenue and like accounting for revenues that weren't there. So basically, you know, they were they were cooking the books. Um, mm. And I think the, the biggest issue, if you've ever read the book, Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about See the, the movie, demise of the <laughs> or the documentary, but not, yeah. I haven't read the book. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, again, like history is filled with these people who have different sort of reputations at different points in their career. I mean, if you think about Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling, like for a long time, they were considered oh. to be brilliant pioneers and entrepreneurs. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, Rockefeller, right, in his early career, John Rockefeller, who was also in the oil industry and became the first sort of monopolist tycoon um, in America, like John Rockefeller was viewed really positively for some time. Then his he was the first sort of, uh, his firm was the first to get broken up by antitrust regulation in the early 1900s. And now I think, you know, people still idolize him. So I think people's reputations go through these different sort of periods. Same thing with Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs is like forced out of Apple. He had, you know, terrible reputation. Now we idolize Steve Jobs, even though in, in many ways, you know, he, he was you know, someone who was very polarizing. Um, same thing with Bitcoin, right? Like I'm sure some people in the Bitcoin industry now who have great reputations may not have them five years from now. There's sort of this, this <laughs> market opinion um, that sort of swings back and forth depending on the, the trends of the day. But uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of characters who I think sort of see something early on um, act on it, pursue it. And in some cases, they're able to execute on it. In some cases, they can't. Um, but it's interesting mm. to see how history remembers these characters and writes these characters. Well, I guess history is written by the uh, the victors, right? Uh, history is written by those who write. So I think we're living in this oh, interesting yeah. age where like narrative defines everything. Reality mm. no longer relevant. It's all about who can create the best narrative. And I think um, that's an area where crypto has been really interesting because in crypto, the people are bigger than the companies. Mm. And even in startups, right? It's a continuation of Silicon Valley. Like the founders are more important in many ways than, than the companies themselves. And when we talk about 
a lot of companies, in a lot of cases, we don't necessarily talk yeah. about the, the company, it's about the individuals. Um, so I think that's been really interesting. So, so what are the narratives that you find currently interesting in the crypto space then? And by that, I suppose, which people are you finding most interesting and what are they doing? Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot that's interesting. Um, what I think has been really fascinating to see over the last three months in particular is um, what's happening in capital markets so in the legacy trading space. I think in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, capital markets are having their AWS moment <laughs> where, okay. you know, typically, if you're, if you're a trader, you sit at your firm, you have a bunch of hardware, you have your phones, like you're you're used to operating in a very specific way. And with yeah. this global pandemic and everyone working from home, trading mm -hmm. floors had to shut down. Everyone activated their business continuity procedures. And like, what's so funny to us is so if I was talking to um, Jean-Marie, our CEO this morning, and he runs our trading desk, um, which is a big part of our business. And he and I were just laughing about how funny it is. Like we were already set up for this because in crypto, you have to be anti-fragile. Right. And especially if you want to survive, he's been doing this for right. seven years, now, like trading Bitcoin with his team for the last seven years. Um, so we had to build systems yeah. that were resilient. A lot of financial services firms, right? Like there are banks in Europe who still can't process transactions because everything is like nothing's designed for this digital world. Um, everything's designed mm -hmm. for this like very analog old school world. So I think we've definitely seen a yeah. bifurcation. Then, um, in the financial services space between companies who are digitally competent and those who aren't. And I actually think if you look at what's happening in the public equities market right now, it's such a reflection mm -hmm. of that. You look at a company like uh, Shopify, right? Shopify has 1.5 billion in annualized revenues. They're mm -hmm. trading right now at an implied $100 million market cap. So that's a PE multiple of close to 70, 75. That's a huge PE multiple, right? On average, PE multiples, even for SaaS businesses, okay. are like 25, 30x. This company is trading at a 75x PE multiple. If you look at um, other companies in the payment space, in the digital finance space, right? They're, they're trading and raising mm -hmm. money at crazy valuations. And the narrative there, again, is like markets are having finance payments. Everyone's having this come to Jesus moment where we're realizing like the future is digital. It's borderless. Like people are not going into bank branches. Um, Nicholas, can you throw up the graphic of how many clicks it takes to open a bank account? <laughs> I sent you this a minute ago. So one of the fun things um, I've been looking at is like how many clicks does it take to open a bank account? Here you see the green is UK, the yellow is Hong Kong, the blue is France, and the red is Singapore. Like Singapore is a place that's invested a lot in creating a regime for fintech companies. There's now a new fintech and digital payments license that was introduced by their local regulator. And as a result, like legacy banks there have been able to innovate um, and startups, fintechs have also been able to innovate. In contrast, if you look at the UK, like the UK regulator, the FCA, you know, we've certainly had um, our interactions with the FCA that, that have been challenging, but um, the FCA, you know, has, has not been as permissive of, of innovation and, and fintechs. And so as a result, you know, the UK ranks lowest. And if you added the US, by the way, they would be way at the bottom of this pile. Because in the US, you have to physically visit a branch location to open an account. And like, it's, it's quite cumbersome. So I think, again, as you as you look at what's happening in capital markets, as you look at what's happening in finance, there's sort of this evolution where like, digital is happening, it's inevitable. Um, mm. Regulators can try to stop it, incumbents can try to stop it, but it's it's happening. And these financial institutions are going to get unbundled. It is going to happen. 
So, so, and, and as these banks and the financial institutions get unbundled, what kind of opportunities do you see arrive from that, uh, from that, that, that landscape that is then being created by that uh, unbundling? Yeah, so you and I were chatting about this a little earlier. I think um, there are a few big areas of opportunities. One is niche banking. So the idea is, mm -hmm. is that you create specialized banking services for different types of customers who have historically been underserved. So markets that yeah. I think right now are just completely underserved. Um, the corporate treasury market is is terrible. Like corporate banking services are just horrible across the board. Mm. Um, and I think attempts to innovate there, like commercial banks have no incentive to innovate because their corporate clients, like they don't really care about their corporate clients, right? Um, the same thing with, um, I think, affluent millennials, right? Like all banking services are the same. If I walk into a bank branch in the United States, like my banking experience is the same as any other person, even though my needs are very different. And I think a part of that is asset management is, is changing and needs to change. Out of, out of curiosity, out of curiosity, could you describe what a banking experience in the U.S. is like? Because sometimes when when we as Europeans talk to people in the U.S., it's actually a wildly different experience than what you would have in Europe. So things like in Sweden, you have like mobile bank ID where you can instantly log in and you can pay things instantly. You have modern banking apps. and But then we have something like a dongle, which is this physical device that you have to connect to your computer in order to do like 2FA. And then I've talked to, uh, I was at an American investor and I was explaining what this is like. And this is like a normal experience for the, for a Swedish user or a European user, and it was completely like foreign to to this investor. So I'm I'm kind of curious, how would you describe a typical U.S. banking experience when you go through it? You showed the clicks. So how many clicks does that involve? And what kind of experience is that? Yeah. So um, I'll give you a very practical example, right? So let's say, for example, that I want to open a new bank account. Um, so. Yeah. First of all, there is really no digital first bank experience in the US still. I think predominantly most banking is still done at, at physical locations. Goldman, I actually think is gonna be a really interesting one to watch because they're trying to build a consumer banking mm -hmm. experience and they don't have the baggage of the other four major banks. But in the US, the retail banking landscape is dominated by four banks. Um, it used to be 37 banks, but over the last 30 years, consolidation has led to four banks that hold close to 60% of all US consumer deposits. There are JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, um, who are the others? Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase, uh, Morgan Stanley, I believe. Okay. So you have four, four mega banks, right? I have a slide on this. I have a slide of everything. <laughs> Okay. Um, Show me the slides. Seriously, you. I love my charts. I, just, I love it. Um, so I, let's say I want to open a bank account with J.P. Morgan Chase, right? So I walk. I can go on their website and submit some information, but I have to go to a physical bank branch and sit down with a teller to show them my ID. Um, mm. Then a lot of the paperwork can't be done digitally, it's printed out physically. Um, I have a lot of issues when I, I wanna interact with my bank account. Um, for example, there is no idea of like two-factor authentication or verification. So if I initiate a wire to someone they haven't I haven't interacted with before, they may actually block my wire and require me to go into a physical bank branch with a copy of my passport and my ID to prove that I want wow. to send that one. Um, yep. Uh, there are also instances. So one, one interesting challenge I've had in the past is, um, you know, attempting to, to send money is really challenging. This is actually how I got into Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. 
I can't send money from my bank account to someone else's bank account very easily. It requires me using ACH and sending a wire. Some mm -hmm. banks have started to integrate with payments providers like Zelle, um, but it, it really is non-existent. Um, the way most people send money today is via PayPal or via Venmo, which is a PayPal product. Um, so, you know, there yeah. aren't really easy ways to send money between one another. I actually think when I first got into Bitcoin, like Circle had created a really cool uh, payment app that used Bitcoin on the back end, but unfortunately didn't didn't get a lot of traction. Um, I think Square's Cash App is a great example. But the issue is right. that the underlying rails in the US are so broken and people haven't invested in modernizing infrastructure. And it's so mm -hmm. difficult to get a banking license, right? There have been no new banking licenses issued for the last 10 years. And then the last six months, two new banking licenses have been issued. One is Square, um, and then the other is another uh, challenger bank. But like, mm. it's it's really difficult in the U.S. because the degree of regulatory capture is so high, and the financial services sector is so lucrative. And what we're seeing now, even with what's happening with uh, PPP or the government support program during COVID for businesses, like the whole way that the pipe Sorry. from the bank, yep. Sorry, go ahead, Frank. Oh, you were breaking up briefly. You said PPP. Maybe you could explain it. You can quickly explain what PPP is for those who aren't familiar with it. Sure. Yeah. So uh, PPP is um, this this uh, stimulus package that was approved here in the U.S. And basically, okay. it was um, five hundred billion dollars that was going to be given to, to small businesses. Um, part of it was yeah. grants. Part of it was interest-free loans to cover payroll. Um, it's the Payroll mm -hmm. Protection Program (PPP). Um, mm -hmm. And the issue was the only way for people to apply to PPP was through federal bank. So in the U.S., there are different tiers of banks. Tier yeah. one banks are directly connected to the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. right? So they have a pipeline from the Federal Reserve. So whenever the Federal Reserve wants to inject stimulus into the economy, they can go directly through these tier one banks who then lend money to tier two banks and so on and so forth. But there's only a handful of banks who have a direct connection to the money printer effectively, right? And so um, what was really interesting about the way this money got distributed is people who had bank accounts at these top tier banks got mm. government relief first. Um, because again, if you are at a tier two or tier three bank that doesn't have direct connectivity, right, you're not going to be able to apply for it as quickly because you're two or three layers removed from that central bank money pipe. And so I think as we look at just the financial plumbing in our world, um, what I think has been so interesting is in, in Europe, you have PSD2, right, or the Payment Standard Initiative, which is attempting to create um, some standardization at a technology level for how banks communicate with one another. Yeah. Um, you have similar sort of initiatives in, in different parts of Asia. Um, you have that now in, in um, you know, parts of South America. In the U.S., there's, there's nothing like that. Um, there's no sort of technology standard. There's not a lot of technology integration. What you have, like most of the fintechs in the United States, what they've done to date over the last 10 years is mostly strapped, uh, slapped a new mm. user interface onto a broken back end, right? It's like the back end, the technology, the plumbing that connects all these banks is completely broken, but you just get like some fancy, shiny app, but it's still three to five days to move your money. Yeah. Like it gets stuck. It's just fucked up, right? It's bad experience all around. And you have this pretty little interface, but nothing at the core has actually been improved in any way, shape or form. And so this right. is where, again, like what's happening with crypto is so exciting because all of a sudden you have this opportunity to use entirely new financial infrastructure and to not be beholden 
to this regulatory environment, because in the US, you have the federal government and you have state governments. The yeah. state, the 52 states and territories, they govern money transmission. Right. But at the federal level, there's also rules around money transmission. So there's this really weird patchwork where if you're a firm and you want to operate in the US, yeah. you're going to not only have to apply for federal level approvals, but you're going to have to apply for licenses and permits and approvals in every single one of 52 different states. So instead of paying one fee and filing one application, you're going to pay 53 fees and file 53 applications and deal with 53 different regulators. So, you know, it's, it's essentially being replicated. It's essentially being replicated for crypto as well, right? So you need to go state by state, and 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 the New York has the bit license. So, so don't you think its underlying technology problem isn't solved because crypto uh, regulation then steam rolls all over it? And of course, you testified in con Congress, so I guess you've been on the side of trying to uh, change that. With I think you worked together with Coin Center there, but isn't the same issue arising where you still have the regulation to go through? Uh, and how how do you think it will you know will crypto then, from an infrastructural point of view, be able to make it uh, and really be a competing technology? Uh, against the existing banking system, or is there a way for the banking system still to evolve the infrastructure and perhaps come closer to, to crypto, or there's some kind of uh, mirrored solution of both that end up winning? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so, so this has been really interesting to watch. Um, in the US, if you look at the predominant approach that's been taken in the crypto space, it's custodial exchanges, custodial platforms, um, you know, the way that the American banking system treats Bitcoin, right? Like I have this Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin is um, a useful asset because it's not beholden to any platform or wallet or exchange. Like once I have a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. It um, interacts, There's you know. There's a there, Malcolm. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, right? It doesn't matter if I hold it in a, a wallet. Let's put a beat under it. Oh. It doesn't matter if I use a third-party uh, non-custodial wallet. It doesn't matter if I use, you know, fully custodial wallet. Um, once I have a Bitcoin, I can do whatever mm. I want with it on the Bitcoin network according to the rules of the Bitcoin protocol, right? So that's what mm. makes it makes Bitcoin such a useful asset um, because it's not subject to financial censorship. It may be subject to censorship at the platform level, right? So every Bitcoin business in the United States complies with money laundering rules and compliance rules in the US um, in order to operate. So at the platform level, there may be rules, but on the Bitcoin network itself, like on the Bitcoin blockchain, there is no entity that's censoring transactions or saying, oh, you can't send money here because of X, Y, Z, right? So that's what makes Bitcoin so compelling and so interesting. The US right. approach to Bitcoin is to say, I'm gonna take this asset which has settlement finality and um, immutability and all these really cool properties. And I'm going to take this asset and I'm going to shove it into a bank vault at BNY Mellon or at Fidelity or wherever it is. I'm going to take this thing and shove it into a bank vault. And then I'm going to give you a piece of paper, right? Or I'm going to give you like a, a, a balance sheet entry on a spreadsheet that says you own Bitcoin, but you don't actually own Bitcoin anymore. You owe an, you own an IOU. And then what we have is this whole system that's people passing around IOUs for Bitcoin that are held by financial institutions. So wait, 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 hold on. Just interject there. Isn't that what XPT providers doing as well? Right, but that's our aim, 
right? Right. So okay. the reason we built XVT provider is a lot of investors who want exposure to Bitcoin don't want to hold their own Bitcoin, right? They're like, hey, I want to have a thousand dollars of Bitcoin price exposure. Right. They're not buying XBT provider because they want to physically own their own Bitcoin. They're buying XBT provider because nope. they're trying to have an yes. easy way to put Bitcoin in their portfolio. And the goal is always like, we want to be that first point where people come yeah. into the Bitcoin life cycle. And it's to we can have this, right? It's totally fine. If people want to come in and they say like, hey, at the start of my Bitcoin journey, I feel way more comfortable, you know, having a certificate like XBT provider, owning a share of Grayscale, um, owning, you know, Bitcoin on, on Coinbase or Gemini or Cephalo, totally fine. If that's where people want to start, great. But I think as you start to work through the system, if we take all of the Bitcoin that's in the system, we've done this analysis about at least 20% of Bitcoin right now is in third-party custody. Another 20% mm. roughly has probably been lost. So roughly one-third of, of all Bitcoin is third-party custody, as far as we can infer. And so what that means is, um, at what point does Bitcoin uh, lose this property of being a systemic hedge if it becomes part of the system and absorbed by the system? And I think that's, that's the foundational question, right, is as the Bitcoin ecosystem matures, we, yes, our product XBT provider is custodial, but we just built a new service on the trading side that is a, a multi-sig custody solution for institutions so that there isn't just one entity who okay. holds your Bitcoin. And so I think, again, the idea mm. is our job as an asset manager is to give people a range of options, right? And in the asset management space, a lot of people want passive exposure. So we give them that. Mm -hmm. But I think, again, as Bitcoin continues to evolve, we have to give people a way to get from where we are today to where we want to go. And when we operate in a regulatory environment where there's so little flexibility in terms of interpretation of how these things could work and should work, mm -hmm. it just becomes very challenging to do anything that's actually truly innovative. Yeah. And and again, I think my, my biggest takeaway is it's impossible for Bitcoin to be a systemic hedge if Bitcoin holders are beholden to financial institutions. There is no structural difference between me, um, you know, having my dollars in a JPMorgan Chase bank account and me having my Bitcoin in a JPMorgan Chase wallet. I, I don't solve any problems yeah. other than having speculative price exposure to Bitcoin um, by custodying all of my coins at a financial institution. And so I think we're just starting to get to this point in the cycle now where people are recognizing, you know, and again, from an asset allocation perspective, I'm not advocating that everyone should hold all their own Bitcoin. But what I am advocating is like, think carefully about what you're signing up for. And I think we try to be really explicit. Like when you're signing up for XBT provider, you're signing up for product that's managed by CoinShares. So you're trusting us. Right. When you buy a you know, a lot of people when they buy a Bitcoin with like Revolut, for example, Revolut did this like ridiculous PR announcement where they're like, we're going to let people withdraw their crypto. But it, that's not actually what they're doing, right? Yeah. Um, they're never going to let you take your Bitcoin out of the Revolut environment. And in fact, I don't even think you have a segregated wallet. I think they hold all of the Bitcoin in one wallet. And then they have a spreadsheet that goes along with that Bitcoin and says, this account has this much Bitcoin, right? And so again, it's so like, not the same the only thing that i've seen i think i think square is now going to offer it for real that you can extract it so i guess you you're holding custodium then you hold the balances i guess an excel sheet who owns what and then if people want to withdraw it they can then withdraw it to to a, another bitcoin wallet so you, of course they 
if they run their operations in a proper way, they do have the underlying assets in their actual control and it's not some kind of reserve bank oh, game, right? Which, yeah. Can we talk about Wirecard now? <laughs> we can talk about Wirecard now. You were talking about fraud before, I think, what was the context? Oh yeah, Enron. Um, and I was, I was supposed to make the bridge to the fraud case of Wirecard, but go on, our 2 billion plus uh, fraud case in a regulated environment. Yeah, and look, the thing that's the thing that's so challenging here is um, the one property of Bitcoin that's so unique and I think makes it really useful from a capital markets perspective is when you and I transact in Bitcoin, that transaction settles with finality, right? So mm -hmm. if I say, Frank, I'm going to send you a Bitcoin, uh, I don't even have to know who you are, right? Like your person on the Internet, we agree to transact. You say, OK, here's my address. I know nothing about you. All I know is that you have a location on the Bitcoin network, you have a Bitcoin address, and I'm going to send some money to your Bitcoin address. I don't know anything else about you. Um, what's so powerful about Bitcoin is I don't have to wait for the JP Morgan Chase branch down the street to open to send you a wire. I don't have to get approval. I don't have to know anything about you. I can simply go on my phone. I can go on my computer. I can run my own client. I can even push the transaction through my own node if I want, right? I can interact directly with the network itself if I want. Um, but what I'm effectively doing is I'm, um, sending you this this value and it settles with finality so once i've hit send on that transaction and it's broadcast to the network and it then gets mined in a block right that transaction cannot be reversed and there that's called settlement finality there's no way to reverse that um and i think yep. that's what makes bitcoin so challenging is it requires us to take great responsibility so you'll remember the first time you sent a material amount of bitcoin how nervous you were like oh yes Any, anyone who has sent anything material in crypto would have that panic moment of well you do a test transaction and then you you know you have several procedures to do that sometimes when you see these hundred plus million dollar transactions on the blockchain you just wonder how you know how much what they have for hat in order <laughs> to, to push the button um of, you know of yeah, course you want to automate it as much as possible if you can but then you have exposure to the hot you know to the internet so it, it's it's def definitely no matter how you look at it still this uh this difficult thing that that crypto inherently has but that's also what makes bitcoin so valuable is the settlement finality and um the ability to have a truly global permissionless um, network for value transfer. It's an open financial system. And what I think is so unique about it is people who are providing services on top of the Bitcoin network that make it easier for people to interact with Bitcoin, they can be regulated at the local level because a business has jurisdiction, but cyberspace has no jurisdiction, right? right? And that's constantly been the challenge in Bitcoins. Like if I send a Bitcoin transaction, how do you determine the jurisdiction of that transaction? BitLicense was one like really poor attempt to attempt to put Bitcoin in the same territory as USD denominated wires, right? Like the, the New York AG, the New York Attorney General and the NYDFS, the New York Department of Financial Services, see I think 80 to 90% of all um, wires that go through the US banking system because they have access to that level of information. Mm. And what the BitLicense does is to attempt to create that same regime so that you have a regulator who has the ability to look into and look through all of these transactions and what i think is like 
really interesting here is in cyberspace, how do you find jurisdiction? Like what regulatory perimeter does a US regulator have if a Bitcoin transaction never touches a US company or US individual? And how are you going to prove that a wallet address was operated from the United States? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets to the point where you're then going to uh, create whitelist and blacklist of everything, both transactions, currency, as well as the notes. And of course, we see attempts with that with, from the crypto forensic side of things where you are effectively blacklisting a whole bunch of coins. You, you, you know, Coinbase has already delisted Monero. Uh, that is sort of a trend across the industry no, where any regulated entity is sort of that. moving away from that. But let's go step beyond that. Sorry? The U.S. Treasury, if we go a step beyond, right, the U.S. Treasury Department has sanctioned a Bitcoin wallet address, right? They've applied sanctions. They've put on the, the blacklist, right, the sanctioned list, mm. a Bitcoin wallet address, right? So Which address already, was that? Um, it, it was an address that was supposedly affiliated with terrorist financing. But mm. again, there's really interesting sort of um point we get to where like you have bitcoin that are fungible and not fungible you have addresses that are whitelisted or blacklisted and what you start to do is like this whole premise of a global um open financial system sort of starts to fall apart at some scale because you're creating um you're you're basically removing fungibility yeah. and so um what i think becomes really interesting about the case of financial fraud the one really cool thing about bitcoin is if I say to you, Frank, I'm going to send you Bitcoin and you're like, mm, I want to make sure she's good for it. You can ask me for my public address and you can confirm that I have Bitcoin in my account. Right. So this ability of a public ledger to sort of um, provide information about who you're interacting with um, is, is an important feature. I also think when um, you know look you look at on-chain analytics, you can see like how much Bitcoin is held in the balances of these exchanges. We have a um, mm. an address you know that we can say like, hey, look, all of the Bitcoin that's supposed to be an XBT provider, here's where it is, and you can publicly validate that on on the blockchain. And I think that's a really valuable property here. So let's get to Wirecard. Is right? that available for a pre XBT provider? You have a wallet address that you can point people at. And it's like here it is. Not um, at this point in time. It's something we've been talking about. Um, okay. it, this idea of proof of reserves, um, I think, is an interesting one. And right. definitely one like following the Quadriga hack and others. We're audited um, on a regular basis, and we make those audit results public. They're available at xbtprovider.com. Uh, so certainly, you know, our aim is always to be incredibly transparent and to provide as much information yeah. um, as we can to give our investors comfort that, that the notes they own but, are fully. But it is interesting, right? Well, what what I think is really interesting here is so it's, like it's look, interesting that when it so good. No, no, you got <laughs> you got. I get so excited about this. So, like, <laughs> so what is interesting that when it comes down to it, right now that we can then fall back on on these traditional systems of traditional auditing uh, that that then validates that the reserves are there. Where it's obviously the point with with cryptocurrencies that you should be able to point at the addresses. At the same time, I guess one of the the arguments here that and part of the decision making on your end is by exposing your wallet addresses, maybe you're also exposing certain things about your organization and how you're structuring things. So you get this this difficulty of on the one end the transparency is helping you provide like proof to the external parties that yes we have everything in reserve but on the other hand that also then exposes maybe some of the infrastructure and how you're dealing with this which is also you know you know that these will alert monitors are out there is like when you're moving any kinds of fund and people are tracking that does that go into the consideration 100%. I mean, look, um, security and operational risk are our primary concerns. 
Um, but I think again, you know, what's, what's so funny about all of this is like in an attempt to obviate the need for trust in transactions, mm -hmm. we've actually created an ecosystem where like we have trusted third parties. And I think this is part of the evolution that's going to take, you know, 15, 20 years. Like it's an entirely new behavior because since the dawn of banking, um, banking has always relied on a trusted third party. We've mm -hmm. never been able to rely on, on code. Um, and I think this is part of the evolution towards a more digital, more connected world where jurisdiction becomes less relevant. Um, and this is where I think the wire card story gets really interesting, right? Um, one of the criticisms you hear about Bitcoin <laughs> all the time, which you've had, I've had, like anyone who spent more than a second in the industry has heard this. Um, and the comment is, well, Bitcoin's not regulated. It's the wild west, which I hate that characterization. Um, it's the Wild West. And because it's not regulated in the same way as traditional financial institutions, because these companies are not publicly listed, because these companies aren't issuing securities through the SEC right. or a local regulator, you know, this is a scam. And here's my criticism to that. Um, look at Wirecard. Wirecard was a regulated publicly listed company mm. who, you know, their shares were, were publicly listed. Um, you know, they were the darling of the, the fintech world, lots of hype around them, and they engaged in a tremendous amount of fraud. Being regulated is not an indicator of quality. Being regulated means that you fill out pieces of paperwork and that you have expensive lawyers who help you fill out and file those pieces of paperwork. And being regulated is good and well. I think it's a good way to ensure you have certain processes in place, like being audited, like running your financials in a certain way, uh, following a certain way, like IFRS or GAAP standards for accounting, which means you account for your revenues in a specific way and you're, you're not doing funny things with your accounting. But um, at the end of the day, being regulated or being publicly listed does not confer any sort of quality on a business. And there are lots of terrible, unprofitable businesses that are publicly listed. Just look at the United States market right now, right? Like look at Hertz. Hertz is a terrible business for all intents and purposes, yet it trades in the public market and is publicly listed. So I think people have this false idea that something being regulated or something having a rubber stamp from a regulator means something about the quality of what that thing is. And as I've seen with Wirecard and Enron and so many other businesses that were publicly listed, that simply isn't the case. Being regulated means you've gone through a process there is no process today for most crypto firms to get regulated because most regulators don't want to touch it. And so I think um, one of the things I'm trying to dispel is this idea that regulation somehow confers quality on something. Um, and the fact that $2 billion of financial fraud, and this is what it looks like is fraud and not incompetence, the fact that $2 billion are missing and this is a publicly listed company that had a compliance team, an accounting team in place, was regularly audited by their local regulator. The fact that this happened is mind blowing to me. It's absolutely mind blowing. And so I think this criticism people have of Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies and what's happening in the crypto space is a lot of it valid. Sure. Do we need better you know, financial practices and accounting and like some of the things a professional company would have? Sure. But is regulation the answer to every problem in its current form? No, because in regulated markets, we see a lot of the same issues of fraud and misrepresentation, like 
it's it's completely wild to me the argument against cryptocurrencies is still oh well they're not regulated or oh these companies aren't regulated so they're fraudulent um anyways that's my rant i just find it so so ridiculous and then you have you know let's take goldman sachs for example I think it's really funny that they put out this report talking about Bitcoin in the context of money laundering when they were just indicted for aiding and abetting Joe Lowe and 1MDB for laundering $10 billion of capital mm. from the Malaysian Development Fund. Like, mm. you're literally embroiled in one of the largest financial fraud cases in the history of of fi finance. And you're going to sit here and comment on Bitcoin's use in financial crime. Like, it's, it's just wild to me that people will acknowledge one, but not the other. And again, that's not to say that, um, you know, one is better or worse. It's just, let's be honest, the amount of money laundering and financial crime that happens in the legacy financial system is also very high. And like, Bitcoin's not unique in this regard. Criminals are going to use any tools at their disposal to get the job done. Mm. Right. And so I just find this this whole regulatory discussion is so silly on so many le levels. And it's well, very um, uh, it's very confusing to me. I don't understand. Well, it. From my perspective, it's like um, the reason why there are companies like ours that try to to uh, be properly regulated is to have that stamp. And with that stamp, you then potentially get access to the traditional financial sector that then allows you to get banking relationships so you can onboard more users. Because in the end, it's, of course, about how do we get to a point of mass adoption where we we can onboard billions of people as opposed to uh, the millions of people that we've already onboarded that are maybe not even having like coming back to our discussion of buying the actual asset or buying a derivative product uh, or like yeah, yeah like a, a paper product is like that are actually owning cryptocurrency that are actually able to participate in this new economy and that's I mean and that's that's the part and and, and you're totally right about uh, all the the frauds in, in Sweden we had it's sort of the hotbed of of uh, uh, money laundering actually in Europe with uh, all Nordic banks from uh, the Danish uh, bank. Yeah, uh, I mean, to no, and all right, like that was huge. It was a huge amount and so blatant, right? That's the other thing about 1MDB. Like it went all the way up to the top. It right. was so blatant. Every knew, everyone knew exactly what it, it was, but they did it anyways, or they found a way to justify doing it anyways. So, so the interesting thing from from that operationally, it could be one person being compromised, and then your controls allows for for just letting that through. It could also be at some cases that it was already ongoing, and they kept kept it ongoing on purpose to keep monitoring it, so they could follow the trail of money and and find the perpetrators. So there's always that is obviously always more behind the scenes, but in principle, you know, if we're looking at our controls, for instance, you know, you you can spend you can't spend a penny at Cefalo without like hitting some rope block right so we're completely inconvenient to to do any type of money laundering uh or, or even have kind of fraudulent spending through a platform and then you see these numbers of billions being obviously laundered through these large organizations and they're telling that we are a hot back for for money laundering that's that's very double but look, 
but I agree with you. Look, I think um, we're we're regulated. Um, we work with regulators. Like regu having regulatory status um, is very important to CoinShares because we want people to view us as a trusted partner and someone they can work with, um, who they trust, especially as they're approaching the world of cryptocurrencies. Which, like, if you read the headlines about cryptocurrency, you don't necessarily feel a lot of trust because there has been fraud and scams and there have been challenges in, in the industry as there are in any sort of young industry, but because this is money yeah. that like go, go away. Um, but I do think, and this is why I'm so excited about what's happening in the Nordics, um, what's happening in the Southeast Asia market and what's happening in different places around the world yeah. is um, regulators that I think are open to you know, working with crypto companies, talking to crypto companies, um, and really finding a way to fit digital currencies into regulatory frameworks without saying like, hey, we're just going to take this asset and shove it into the central bank and then let you trade zeros and ones on a spreadsheet. <laughs> I think that to me um, is right. slowly starting to happen. And hopefully that starts to become more of a competitive advantage. But um, I am hopeful maybe that by talking about it uh, more people will just actively think about you know that some of those challenges um but that being said look what we're focused on and really what our focus is for the the remainder of the year is um we want to continue to give people an easy way to invest in bitcoin um that right now is you know in the european market our xbt provider um family of products is is the way to do that um, we've really enjoyed, you know, working with the uh, SFSA in Sweden um, and our sort of uh, Swedish client base and our client base throughout Europe. I do think it's really um, helpful for investors of all types to have an easy way um, to access Bitcoin and other digital assets. And what's been really cool to see is now there are a number of products in the market that do that in different ways. So I love that there's a more active conversation. There's more asset managers emerging. Um, we're also very focused on our active strategies. So we have um, you know, a variety of different strategies that are more active and tailored towards more sophisticated investors. We've been growing our capital markets offering as well. So we uh, traded $1.5 billion of cryptocurrencies in Q1 and have uh, been really focused on growing uh, the derivatives and options side of our business and providing connectivity. So we've built a bunch of really great technology with our trading team that allows traditional brokers and traditional funds um, to interact with digital currencies in the way they would be used to trading other assets. So all on one screen and streamlined execution, just making it a lot easier to, to manage exposure to digital assets. And so we're continuing to really focus on what, what we can do best. Um, we understand legacy capital markets, we understand digital assets. And so we're going to try to be that bridge for investors and market participants. We're, um, you know, we're not a Cephalo, we're not creating any retail payments products or payment solutions, but we certainly want to provide services to, to all the firms that are more consumer oriented and payments oriented, and just think about all of the different ways that we can use our expertise and what we know how to do to help the industry grow. Um, and I am very optimistic. I think, again, you know, uh, the last three months have been a wake up call to many people in, in many different ways, whether that's 
about the nature of of money in our our world and um, whether that's about you know the unsustainable economic regimes we live in whether that's about the fragility of payments infrastructure whether that's about you know um, the politics of, of certain governments and having the ability to for the first time exit um, a certain regime by by opting not to hold its currency like I think a a lot of narratives that we've been talking about internally in the industry have sort of materialized over the last mm. three months and they're continuing to, to grow. Um, the fact that money printer Go Burr became a meme, like it's a meme about fiscal policy and monetary policy. Right. It, it's a meme about the Fed and everyone knows what it means. I think that is really telling sign of, of the times. And um, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that out of this, we'll see a generation of startups and entrepreneurs and companies and users, particularly my age group, millennials, who, you know, have suffered now not one but two economic crises and are so behind in terms of um, financial well-being and wealth inequality that they'll never catch up. Um, I think it's like an important, important moment. And um, it creates opportunity. It also creates challenges. But I'm very optimistic that we're going to rise to the challenge. That's the goal. That was the, <laughs> Nicholas was putting up the the money printer, and I was added it to the stream. But it, <laughs> he he yeah, already moved uh, removed it. Yeah, here Listen. there we go. Yeah, he had this. <laughs> yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, Nicholas. Yes, but make it go faster. Yeah. <laughs> go make it go faster. Um, I think I think those were great parting words. I think we're all up in time. Um, thanks so much, uh, Melton, no, for for sharing. Sorry, uh, Frank, sorry. We have, we have we have a parting thought. What are you saying? Yeah. So if we look at the live comments, someone by the name of One More Peter. Yeah, One More Peter <laughs> is Peter Smith from Blockchain, and he's just giving me a hard time. <laughs> Peter has always been a troll, so thanks for trolling, uh, Peter. Peter's a troll. He's always been a troll, so I like that he's taking time out of his the, day to troll us. He's been <laughs> he's been a troll since ever ever since I met him. We'll we'll get him on the show sometime, uh, and then he can troll me all the way through. Uh, was there well, another I, party thought you had? Yeah. No, I just wanted to acknowledge um, Peter's comment. I'm yeah, surprised ignore... to pick on you. Usually he picks on me, Frank. Oh, I I know Peter since 2013. The very first meeting I had with Peter was him trolling trolling me and telling me what a terrible business idea this fellow was that I should never start. So it's never gotten better than that, but I love him. Uh, so I guess on that note, that was episode 11 and the final episode for this season. You have any message for the for the people listening for the future of crypto or any other warming words that they can uh, go into summer with? Sure. Um, you know, you can always reach out and chat. My DMs are open. I'm at melt underscore dem. Um, visit us at CoinShares, coinshares.com, or if you want to learn more about XBT provider, XBT provider dot com. Um, my legal team would want me to say that everything I expressed is my personal opinion, not the opinion of CoinShares, it's not investment advice, but I think that hopefully is abundantly clear to everyone. Um, and other than that, you know, I'd say um, keep pushing. Like I, 
there have been periods over the last five years have been really dark. I know you've been there, Frank. I've been there. We've all been there. Um, but he, like, I every single day that goes by, I become more and more optimistic that um, the idea of Bitcoin, as it was originally envisioned, is incredibly valuable and is incredibly needed in our world. So keep pushing. That's it. I concur. <laughs> and thank you so much for those words. <laughs> Um, all right, then we finish up. Thanks again, uh, Meltem. Uh, we are going to, you know, evaluate how we did with this first season. It was a it was an adventure uh, for us figuring out how we do it, but we got a lot of positive feedback and great guests like Meltem uh, that made the show uh, at least for me fun to do. And uh, hopefully, see you after summer. And until next time, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. We hope that you learned something valuable today. Please give us your feedback in the comments section and go to blog.cefelo.com for all the links and mentions from today's show. See you next week.